You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. For more information about this podcast, please see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. My guest for episode 37 is the masterful Nick Kershaw. You probably know him from his handful of very big hits in the 80s, like this one, Wouldn't It Be Good, from Human Racing 1984. Today we are going to be discussing These Tears, from his most recent album, Eight, that is from 2012, Lost from You've Got to Laugh, 2006, and the acoustic version of The Riddle off of his No Frills 2010 album, the original being the title track to The Riddle, also from 1984. And we will wrap up by listening to a new single released October 2016, written for charity, the title track from the Prostate Cancer UK's A Gift for Men United. The song is called Men United. More information can be found at nickkershaw.net. I will have played, during my intro words, a little bit of Wouldn't It Be Good, of course. At least in the U.S., that was the the thing. That was the one that we knew. Yeah, that um, was yeah, that was pretty much only one. In fact, I've played it live in multiple lineups of my band. That's how much I enjoy this song. Very cool. But I gotta say, having been introduced now to these newer albums, this should not be a profound thing, but you've gotten better. It's a normal progression of craftsmanship i don't care if these songs were not giant hits these are very good yeah that's kind of what's supposed to happen though isn't it i mean in any other trade or craft you start off not knowing what you're doing and and slowly learn how to do it and you you get older and you get more experienced and you get better at it but that's not something that's really appreciated in this business i don't think well and it might be especially acute in your case because from first blush it seems to me that your earlier songs are not Maybe they're just not early enough. They're not steeped in teen angst that is irreplicable now that you're older. Yeah, I guess so. But those early successful ones were, I wasn't that young then anyway. I was kind of right. mid twenties. So I kind of, you know, my teen angst was kind of dealt with in private <laughs> or much earlier on when no one was listening. Well, let's get pretty quickly to one of these new songs from eight, 2012, these tears. Do you have any introductory words about this musically, thematically, before people hear it? Not really. I guess that the whole, the 6-4 bit in yes. the verses, I kind of keep gravitating towards 6-4 quite really in, in, in the recent years. And I mean, there was a song on my To Be Frank album called Wounded, which is in 6-4 as well. And it just seems like a really great time signature because you can get, it's got a tempo to it. It kind of gets to the beginning of the next bar, not as quick as you would do if you were in four four, but you don't. You're not hanging about for two bars. In, you know, it's I, it's just a kind of a, a nice tempo. It's a rhythm of lyrics that I keep coming up with. It's just, and I sort of hear it in my head, and I think, oh, that's six four again. Why do I keep coming back to that? But it just kind of works. It just kind of speeds things up, along a little bit. Yeah, well, and this one is especially interesting because when that's introduced, the, the beginning of the verse is before the beat actually starts. So it's like you're doing a pickup note, but it lasts. I see tears running down her, and then it's like the verse actually starts. Yeah, see the tears run down her face, and that that's the first beat of that 6-4 bar, yeah. All right, I need to resist getting too far into it. Let's just play it.
the main riff here, the super catchy part, has two interlocking bits, which either of them could have run the song by itself. This da 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 da, and then you got the bomb ba da da, and so you introduce them in sequence. Say something about how those came together. I mean, was it really that you're playing the keyboard riff and then you're singing the guitar riff, or how do these things come about? You know what? I can't honestly remember because <laughs> these things just—I I can't remember if it happened as part of the recording process. Like I recorded one, I've got one part together, and then the other kind of locked in with it because it's kind of an answer part, or whether it's just in my head in the first place. Because I do quite often hear things in my head as a complete thing. So I'll hear a bass line or hear a guitar part in relation to the keyboard part, however. So that, that it could well have come like that in the first place. I just listened to you on the Soda Jerker podcast, which I will refer listeners to, so we don't have to repeat all that okay. stuff. But one of the things that came out clearly in that was that unlike many artists who might just be strumming a chord progression and then singing stuff over it, which I know you do that too, but that you often have a melody first, a melody clearly in mind, and then that's the thing that carries through while you're then doing a lot of mucking about on chords underneath it that gives you a certain freedom that you can change keys in crazy ways. It's not just that you have this strange chord progression that then you have to come up with some kind of melody that actually works over that, which might be unnatural. No, it's the natural melody comes first. So for instance, when I do that, I do a lot of walking around and just humming something. But then I find when I sit down, it's actually the dumbest possible chords. It's actually chords that I would have been insulted if I just sat down and it's like a one, four, five thing. But so maybe it was the dun, 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 dun. Like that's the main catchy thing. That can be a curse as well. I do exactly the same thing. I'll, I'll think of this great melody in my head and I'll think of the chords around or I imagine the chords. I can usually work out what they are in my head anyway because that's mm-hmm. quite, you know, quite easy to do. But then I'll sit down with an acoustic guitar or whatever and, and actually strum it and vocalize it. And I think, but uh, yeah, like you, oh, it's those chords again. I keep coming back to those chords. Why do, and then try and mess it up. Yes, throw in a ninth, make the key go up, do something. Whereas quite often, I mean, I have found over the years that quite often, actually, no, it's all right. You are allowed to use those chords. It's not like they're kind of been banned under the Geneva Convention or anything. You are actually allowed to use those chords. But I do struggle with that sometimes. I kind of think, well, this is a bit normal. This is a bit ordinary. Can it be any good? But quite often your first instincts were right. But sometimes, I mean, I get part of a tune together. I don't hear where it's going. I don't know where it's going to go. It might go off on a tangent somewhere. At that point, I might sit down on an acoustic and try and let the melody lead me somewhere else harmonically, really. That's what happens. So one of the songs we're going to talk about, our third song is going to be from your uh, No Frills acoustic album. And a lot of the live stuff I was looking at you doing was in that format. Is the goal, even for a song like These Tears, which obviously has a, you know, a very humble melody, is, is it still that you could presented in that sort of setting, at least you by yourself with it on a piano or you by yourself on a guitar and it would still sound like something? Or is this in particular one much more dependent on that rhythmic drive and having the ability between the choruses and the verses to fill out and add the extra high synth to add the textures? Yeah, and there's a production element to it as well. I mean, I have played this live. I've played it with the band. I've never attempted it on an acoustic. I don't think it will work. I mean, I'm always going to be writing songs that do work on acoustic and I'm always going to be writing songs that don't. I don't kind of worry about whether they are or not at the time of writing, really. But I'm, I mean, I made it quite a cross for my back, really, trying to recreate some of the old tunes on an acoustic because they are quite difficult to stick onto an acoustic guitar because they, they were basically written in my head and, sure, and the, sure. the chords do go off in all 
sorts of directions and it, it just makes life a bit difficult when you want nice open chords on an acoustic and stuff and you can't really do that yes without retuning a bunch of times during the song or something to have to i think we're talking about the riddle later and then the riddle being a case in point on because on the record it actually modulates a semitone so that the end choruses are, are in g minor and but the first two choruses are in f sharp minor and it, it modulates at the start of the middle eight section but i don't do that on an acoustic because it's just much easier to stick a capo on the third fret and sure. do the whole thing in G minor. So there's a subtle little difference in, at the right at the beginning of the middle eight where it doesn't actually go where you think it's gone. So bringing back to this song, I mean, is it one of the advances of being a more mature songwriter that you don't feel the need in this song like to throw in quite as tricky... <laughs> Court. I mean, you've already got the 6-4. I've already got the 6-4. You don't have to pull out all your ammo in one song. You know, you don't have to do stuff because you can. That is something I have learned because after the first couple of albums, I became aware that I was getting a reputation amongst musos for doing just that, for being quite adventurous harmonically. And it became a little bit of a badge for me. Then I'd start writing and I'd deliberately just do something because it was clever. <laughs> and I think, oh, they'll, they'll love this. They, those guys will really love this. So, uh, and it was the wrong reason for writing a piece of music because it's like writing a piece of music because you want the people to think how great you are, which is not, that's the, so wrong. And it kind of messed up a few pieces of, of music as well because you just have to learn when to do it and when not to do it, when it's the musically right thing to do and when it, it just isn't. You just Sometimes you just have to leave things alone because they work. Yeah, so the thing that's immediate and powerful that makes this sort of the quintessential pop song is this. My son was comparing it to some big Coldplay song, the Vita. Yeah. Regardless, so that's the foundation of the song, right? Is The actual story of the lyrics, how does that come into it? Was this a pre-existing idea that you glommed on or was this something that you were kind of making up as you were going along trying to come up with it's one of these words and music ones is where the the words sort of came as part of the melody i can actually remember what i was doing when it came into my head i was walking my dog across some fields and i just started singing it in my head i just started singing these tears are all I have, are all I... It's, and then the rhythm of the words and i think that pretty much sure. most of the words were there in that chorus I wasn't absolutely sure what the hell it was about. I probably don't have any more, but then, you know, it would have been stuck on my iPhone as I was walking the dog. It would have been put on there and I probably forgot about it for a few months as I do. And then I'd just be wading through bits and pieces on my iPhone and come across that. And I, I just remember listening to it off the iPhone and thinking, well, the words are there and this is pretty much ready to go. This is, why don't you just write this song? So that was it. And now all I like to do then is find out what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> so do you try to sketch out when you've got a story song like this do you try to like i had another guest on this guy from a band called beauty pill yeah who he was telling me then details of the story that didn't make it into the song i'm like this is way more <laughs> narrative thought than i put in you know when i'm putting in lyrics like this is that the way you air or is it more it's vague and maybe i better make this a little more specific yeah you, because you can't write I've learned over these to try and write just a, like a little microcosm of what you're writing about. It's the little things, not try and say everything about everything in one song because you end up probably saying nothing. And just stay on message and stick to a very specific point. And the point in this song being that the only thing that keeps this girl connected to this guy who's gone, whether it's from a bereavement or a relationship breakup, it doesn't matter. The only thing that still connects 
her to him are the tears and the act of crying and the act of just that's where she's with him in that moment. And just to try, not necessarily to explain it, but just to try and put people in that moment. If you have to explain a a lyric within the lyric, then you're probably not writing a very good lyric. You just have to put people in mind of what she's thinking and where she is, really. Now, for some reason, I had a more convoluted interpretation. I'd I'd love to hear that. (laughs) Which was that... She's in a relationship with some bastard. Yeah. And the tears are somehow the coping mechanism. But of course, that doesn't actually fit with the trying hard. Well, so trying hard to let him go would be she should leave this guy, but he's a bastard. (laughs) If that's what it is to you, you know, I mean, that's, that's fine with me. No, but it's just, I'm just got, cause I had to go and print them out cause I couldn't remember them when you said you were going to do this. And I obviously had to listen to the tracks again cause I don't hear them that often. The epitaph thing wouldn't work as well unless it was like she's planning on murdering him. Yeah. But she does, <laughs> it's like she doesn't want these tears to stop. She'd rather he was there than not. But that, yes. that is basically saying that he's not physically there, but the only mm. way she can be there with him or he can be there with her is through the act of crying that's why she keeps crying and they can be his epitaph and she if she didn't cry she'd laugh yeah and that makes the juxtaposition of the words and the music make more sense because it has an i sort of i will survive feel in terms of it's a yeah kind of exultant main riff the tears in this sense are kind of a good thing or a comfort there are yeah and it's it's just the, the act of her letting go or trying to that's all it's about it's a very small thing but I found it easier to write about the little things over the years than it is to write about the big kind of world-shattering things. <laughs> I guess, is there anything in particular in the, I think our second song, Lost, is going to be a better example of this, just in terms of the elaborate studio production. But you've certainly got some here, and it seems more a matter of there's a bunch of elements that you could you know, have all at once that are in the main riff, but instead mm. you back off a little bit. So at around two and a half minutes in, so at the very beginning, again, you start off with the single note guitar line, guitar bass doubled, and then have the keyboard. Well, on halfway through, you sort of s- switch it around and take that away so that the bass and the distortion guitar are just punctuating only. So you can hear a little more the main, well, I was going to say keyboard riff, but I think it's actually guitar and keyboard in unison, right? The da, 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 because it sounds like when you're two and a half minutes in, and that happens again, that actually the high string keyboard is not even in there. That's sort of saved for the... Now we want to hear an octave up. But you've got a couple of layers of keyboard. Either it's a couple of layers of keyboard or you jump up an octave. Now it's the big part. Yeah, I meant the keyboards, yeah. It's more guitar than keyboard in that where it mm-hmm. breaks down a bit. And it's a very kind of understated keyboard where the big sort of synthy fizzy keyboard doesn't come in until the whole thing kicks in a few bars later and then at the end you kind of do the same thing where you've got this uh you've got a really actually nice well it's pretty subtle so are you playing everything on this so you're playing the bass and everything except the drums yeah no paul's playing the guy paul geary plays. okay so, playing the bass on that. so the, the the bass in particular i mean really serves the song i know some of your early stuff you really like fancy bass lines like yeah. that, which I as a bass player appreciate but you know it's really following the thing and finally right near the end of the song you let him kind of open up just a little bit just to add a little more funk in there yeah. so it's these subtle things and even just so you're repeating the chorus like three times at the end and well let's add some 16th note tambourine just during the last half of the last one just to like 
give it that extra little push. Do you know what? It's just great someone hearing all this detail because that you put your heart and soul in, into something and you spend hours and hours programming hi-hats and, and doing God knows <laughs> what else. And you think, well, you know, in the end, who's going to care because they're going to be listening to it on a MP3 on a phone somewhere or whatever. <laughs> but it's just kind of... <laughs> It's all worthwhile that you've actually noticed all this stuff going on because it, it's exactly what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm kind of building. I think, well, what's the point in having another chorus if it's exactly the same as the one before? It's either got to build or it's got to fall apart or it's got to have some point in actually having it. I just wanted to increase the tension and the vibe, really. Yeah, so the bass picks up quite significantly and then the old 16th tambourine, which is, which I, I use a lot, yeah. Now, that said, are you... <laughs> It's okay to confess this, but for the keyboard parts, given that you're doing this in a computer setup, yeah. are you cutting and pasting between the, so that when, when that synth chords, it's actually just the same performance as the previous? Oh, for sure, because I'm not a keyboard player. So if I'm supplying the keyboards, I am quite simply programming everything and it's copied. I'm not, why would I play it again if it's, if it's performing the same function, you know? And, you know, to the event that the ones when the keyboard's being augmented, I just copy the dots down to the next track and using a different sound and just the classic, isn't that what everybody does? If, if I could play keyboards, if I could play the, sit down and play <laughs> the piano, then it would be different. I could actually do it within a performance you know I'd, I'd play a bit louder i play you know i'd just play with a bit more intensity and uh, but i can't do that i don't have those kind of chops on the keyboard being a guitar player so um yeah absolutely cut and paste well let's get to the second song to bring this on the table so this is lost which is the first one i picked this one in particular because parts of it like your 80s stuff just have this thicket of keyboards that <laughs> i can hear took a long time to figure out the sounds here obviously by 2006 this is from the you've got to laugh the album before this one there was the acoustic album in between but the all original album before eight with better keyboard technology <laughs> It's much more subtle, more timeless, I can say, that some of the, I was a, l a little surprised in listening to, you know, back through, I hadn't like listened to all of the Human Racing album in quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And hearing some of those songs, how thick the layers in just a way that it is hard to get a live keyboardist to fill that much space without it sounding like Elton John.
So we start again with some fake drums, mm-hmm. which we had on the first song. We didn't really talk about that on these tiers. Yeah. That you have this layering to you know to introduce when the big riff is going to come in. We're going to start with this little drum part, and here you've got that juxtaposed with acoustic guitar, which I think of as the psycho killer effect. In other words, the, the stop making sense movie where he comes on stage and puts a boom box with like the lowest fi kind of little drum machine that's going on and then plays a nice acoustic thing over that. I th- seems like David Gray maybe is a guy that yeah. kind of popularized or you know brought that back. <laughs> it's just saving the big guns for the choruses. It's just kind of Sure. I do I love contrast. I love I love big sudden changes and explosions of sound and stuff. It's just kind of I love that drama. Just save or make a big deal out of the drums in this part of the the song they're just kind of keeping time really so the pre-chorus here you go through two verses and then you have the lullaby you know lullaby is actually in the words <laughs> and the melody suggests that a, a neil finn was coming to mind this crowded house although he would probably layer it with background vocals or something in a way that you yeah. seem to be much more tentative about adding but the fact that you still have during this lullaby section you still have that drum machine going and in fact introduce a kick drum yeah so the beginning of every phrase in that is boom Well, it's just to let you know he's there. You know, it's like, oh, he's there and he's going to be coming along any minute. This drummer's going to come and start giving it some. Yeah, I just like that tension and so something's about to happen and then it happens. Yeah, it's quite gratifying when some, you know, you're expecting something and then it does actually happen. Right, and then the giant chorus comes in, which I almost went with the song right after this. Oh, it's- All About You, yeah. All about you, because that one is even more unexpected in terms of, wow, the big, <laughs> although I got to say then playing it repeatedly, like, okay, well, now I know that's coming. Whereas this one, I feel like the chorus is just as effective on the fifth listen yeah. as it was before, because it's not relying quite so much on the surprise of this massive thing, but it's still a very gratifying... It's not an ambush. Yeah, it's a very gratifying opening of the sound palette. Well, okay, good. That's good. In actual fact, I mean, one story about this song is that it was kind of two songs at one point. It was mm. this first belonged to a different song, and it, I just couldn't get a chorus that really worked. But the chorus in this song came from just a groove. I was determined to find a, a groove as my model for it was Growing Up by Peter Gabriel. Oh, yeah. It's probably the best groove ever put onto a of recording that song is just amazing and i just i was trying to get my head into it and just trying to figure how why does it feel like this this is just so good and all the different elements and i stuck them all together and it came out completely different <laughs> and i failed miserably to copy the groove from growing up but it is it's a groove of its own that i ended up with and i thought okay that's fair enough and again i didn't have a lyric i didn't know what it was about i just had a groove and i just stuck the two together because they just happened to be the same tempo. And I thought, well, this kind of works. And then the lost thing kind of came from somewhere. I don't know where it came from, because I didn't have any lyrics for the verses either. But those two pieces of music kind of got stuck together from two different songs. So which one did the pre-chorus belong to, the lullaby part that belonged to the verses? Yeah, that belonged to the verses, yeah. You find yourself with a pre-chorus, but then it, well, where is this going? Where is it going? And it never got anywhere. You could have put the chorus from All About You musically... (laughs) Right after this lullaby, like it would have worked just as well in terms of it needs to open up and do something pretty. Well, you could probably choose any chorus of, of any song that's ever been a hit every, anywhere <laughs> of, in this tempo and stuck it in there. And it would have, you know, it's all down to familiarity, isn't it? If you're just used to hearing something, then it belongs there. 
because that's the thing about writing a song as well because when when you're doing it it's all new it's new to you or you're trying hope it's new to you otherwise you're repeating yourself far too much so you don't know if it works or if you don't know if it fits or you don't know if it belongs but it's like all music if you listen to it enough times and you that familiarity means it does belong there it just it becomes the right thing having something that the pre-chorus suggests that now we're going to do something really lyrical and it's going to be and now we're just like in this tight little groove that's a brilliant left turn with the little synth flute sounds yeah <laughs> wasn't that planned really it was just kind of <laughs> Oh, now we're in this key and it doesn't really go anywhere modally. It's just all chord wise. It's just kind of grooving on a, on the, whatever the, the chord is. And it's similar, you know, just like putting that kick drum in the lullaby part that presents a strange. You've got this mixture in the chorus of some very simple elements like that synth flute, do, 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 and the bump. Uh, you know, that you could be playing with one finger here. I love, you know, when synth beds have these simple parts, but then you'll also have as the bed, I called it an arpeggiator in my notes here, but it's not an arpeggiator because it's the same note. It's just what changing tones, like it's got a phaser on it, but it's just doing eighth notes. What is that exactly? Probably something chopped up. Well, they aren't always because like uh, it might be something just chopped up. These one note with an interesting rhythmic texture thing becomes like, that's the solo fills. We don't have a guitar solo here. We just have a few different instruments coming in with these pretty much the same note, but I'm calling them little fireworks here. Yeah, I kind of struggled with it a little bit. I always want to put in some kind of musical, lyrical theme or something or, or something to fill a hole. Do you know what I mean? And I, I kept thinking it wasn't finished. A lot of the time I kept thinking I'm going to have to put more stuff on it. But then I kind of, I left it alone for a bit and came back a few weeks later and sort of played it. And I thought, actually, this is all right. This is interesting enough. It's doing something. Yeah. Why do I have to put something on top of that? I don't. So you're saying some of the times those kind of riffs might just be you play something and then in post you're creating that spluttery effect rather than this is a synth sound that is designed to do that. All I'm saying is is that even with that synth part in there, uh-huh. I would probably have thought, well, I've, I can't just leave it like that because it feels like just part of the rhythm track. Do you know what I mean? And it just kind of thinks, well, there, there should be something on top of that to keep people's interest. But then, no, there doesn't have to be that that's that's what i figured but that yeah that is some kind of synth program but i can't remember exactly how i did that i can't remember I do any of it that's the point whenever i <laughs> whenever i sit down and do something new i just sit in front of a computer and mess about really i just mess about with keyboards or filters or sequences and just and then you end up with something and you don't know is it becomes as i said before it becomes well that kind of works and i'll leave it alone for a bit to see whether it just kind of stays there and it sits there and, and if you go back to it a few weeks later and you think, well, does it, just, if it doesn't work, it will tell you. It will tell you immediately when you listen to it after that amount of time. It will go, hey, this is wrong. Got to fix this or you've got to replace it. It's certainly easy in the digital world to go digging in synth sounds and effects and, and just come up with something that you then would not be able to replicate. You could open it and just look at what effects you used in things, of course. They're, they're right there usually. I could go back, yeah, except that I don't think I have the recordings for this are on, on a hard drive somewhere that has got completely, it's like a scuzzy drive that they don't exist anymore. So I've got no means of getting to that audio without investing in some vintage digital equipment, if there is such a thing. So I can't go back to that because I've got a completely different system now. So I, I, don't, I don't know. 
I, know, I, mean, I think the biggest problem nowadays with any kind of recording or production is that you do have so much choice and nothing needs ever to be finished because you've always, you can always take it to bits and put it back together again. With, with the 24 track analog that we had back in 1984 or whenever, you know, when you've got a code on one track, so you've got 23 tracks to record on and that's, you know, once it's full, it's full. <laughs> it's finished. But you can't do that anymore. Yeah. So, so talk about the difference between were you then though doing most of this kind of work in a sequencer, you know, a sort of manual tap tap, not on a screen sequencer when you were doing, say, the riddle programming, the riddle. We did have the Fairlight. That was the technology of the time. There were Fairlights around, and I think the Synclaviers are just were just about to come on the scene. So yeah, that was Fairlight Page R, it was called, the sequencer part for Fairlight. All right, so at least you were looking at something on a screen. I, at the time, had a Casio CC5000, which the screen was like an inch tall. On the, It wasn't quite the same experience. There was a thing called Yamaha QX1 as well, which I used live at, at some point, which was kind of, had a, had a tiny little screen, which was about half an inch, a strip of about half an inch, which just told you what the note was. It was a C-sharp minor, and it, it lasted for that long, and it did that. It was absolutely, I can't believe I spent hours and hours and hours programming this damn thing. And did you have to save the data to like a cassette? Not quite a cassette. It was a five and a half inch floppy, you know, the, the big floppy disk. When floppy disks were absolutely floppy, that's what all the mixes were saved on as well in the studio from on the, on the automated desks. They were all saved on floppy disks. So is it the same issue that you, you can't go back to your original programming of those things and reimagine them within a digital framework like you just have to start from scratch and yeah. use this as a guide track or something absolutely you have to start again you know that is a problem in that and it also the, the choice you've got in, in sound you kind of looking for a keyboard part and then you're looking for a sound and you find a sound that kind of works but it worked better with a slightly different part and then you get a slightly different part and you think well maybe i can find a better sound for that and then you find another sound and that suggests <laughs> another part and then you just just go around in circles and you can have loads of so much choice of keyboard sound that you can you can choose the keyboard sound and think well this this works but is it is it special enough and then you spend the next three hours just listening to the same f- phrase with with a different keyboard or sampler sound on it and um, just drive yourself nuts. And after, literally after five minutes, you've lost the ability to make a decision anyway. So it's like a wasted three hours probably. Well, and then you've got the added challenge, which of course makes it sonically richer of that you're blending real instruments into this. So is it that you've got the keyboard thing mostly f- finished and then you bring in the drums and bass to you know replace guide things that you'd set up on your computer setup or might some of those come in earlier in the process to establish yeah well it, nowadays it's, it's a bit more complex than that because obviously for bass you can use uh, real bass sounds and it actually sounds like a real bass and all the bass programs are pretty amazing is that what happened here or was this an actual bass in this one i programmed a, a synth bass on this but uh, this was actually replaced by nick beggs on on stick Chapman stick. Okay. All right. That explains. Yeah. This likewise toward the end. So he's just got that, the coolest, funkiest little bass riff that he's been just, you know, following the song so closely. And now <clears throat> you introduce just a little bit of funk on the guitar and then throw that in. I'm a bit of a control freak as far as kind of other musicians are concerned. A, a lot of the time I've got a very good idea of what I want and it's already on tape. It's either a, a fake bass or a fake drums or or whatever. And the person comes in and they'll 
they'll start by just just to get the hang of the song just kind of cut what i'm doing you know and it will sound different because someone's actually playing it and that's what i'm after most of the time but sometimes i mean you're using all these great players and you think well this is crazy not to just let them rip every now and again so it's i try and give musicians a little bit of space to do their thing this is your space to do your thing nick and he did <laughs> are you super efficient in that way that here's the little bit or do you just record all their takes and like, well, if they do something else interesting, I'll use that as well. You've just identified another problem, obviously, because it's like you, you get people in and in the old good old days, you used to, you had a piece of tape that long and you, you just, you needed a bit for this section and you played it until you got it right. And then there you go. It's that take. That's the one. And you decided that was the one. We're not doing it again. Whereas you can just record, you'll get someone in and, and they're only there for a limited time and you just get them to record. You record everything they do and you just spend the next three weeks <laughs> sifting through it and just trying to find, just to mold it to exactly what you want, which I still do. In some ways, it's quite disrespectful to the player because you can completely change what they played anyway. You can turn it into something completely different if you really wanted it. I like that one riff you did. I'm going to copy it so it happens five more times and I'm going to move it up an octave. And Yeah, I'm going to change just that one note there. I'm going to change that. <laughs> but yeah, because I mean, the, the producer is king, really. He can he just gets people in to do what, what he wants and then just fits it to what he needs, really. Because of technology as it is, you can, you can do that. It's astonishing. It's good and it's bad. It is what it is. Now, is there a logic for when you choose to do a fade out as you do in the song and when you choose not to do one, as was the case with these tears that you just had at the end of these tears had a really nice ending that you'd come up with and like, okay, that's got to be, but then there was just nothing comparable. So we're just going to fade this one. It's usually a way of ending a song. And I do like to start and finish a song. It's like, there you go. That's what you get. Because fades were, dare I say, a bit 80s. Well, this has a fade. <laughs> and this this has a fade. Yeah, I, I did. In fact, I listened to it and I thought I actually couldn't believe what I was hearing. I think, did I really just <laughs> give up on this and it just fade it out? And I obviously did. Well, I could also see in the digital world, especially not that it was you know that uncommon even in the 80s, but to have it, you kind of have this breakdown, you know, as we just played some of where you, you hear the little, I wrote it down as a synth jaw harp. That's in every chorus, but it's not only exposed here. At the end, you've got the little drum riff. It could very easily just kind of fragment off into little bits of things. That ends up being the fade out. That it's not that the, the song as a whole is playing the band and fades out. Like it's that it dissolves into some puddle of synth. I do that, resort to that on occasions as well. Yeah. Well, it's a good way to show off the stuff. You know, you come up with a, a song where I just, I'd come up with a very, cool little three or four acoustic guitar part tight netting that was under every chorus, but it really wasn't obvious at all. So I just like, okay, well, I'm going to put that by itself as the outro. Well, that's what you do. You spend uh, hours <laughs> layer, layering all this stuff and, and all this cool stuff and each each little element you're very proud of and stuff, and then you stick it and mix together and you can't hear any of it. <laughs> so that's what 12 inches were for. That's what <laughs> that's what extended mixes were for and back in the 80s because I can't think of any other purpose for them. I really don't. But you Oh, they're not they're not just for a dance hall where you make them tediously long and have the same drum riff. No, you do. Well, we did we did them because we had to do them. You know, the marketing department at MCA Records, where's the 12 inch? So you'd have to turn a song that was written as a three and a half minute, four minute song into a song that's seven and a half minutes long. And the only way you can do it is that really. Again, here's the bass part on its own. And here's the drum part. And here's that cool keyboard part on its own. 
But it is quite interesting. Bizarrely, I was listening to some Scritty Politty today in my car. It's on random. But it played the 12-inch of... I didn't even know I owned any 12-inches of other people. So it just kind of must have sneaked in on a best of or something. But it was the the 12-inch of Absolute. And you did get to hear all the elements in that. And there's lots of stuff going on in in Scritty Politty songs from back then. So I guess in creating a 12-inch, the idea is that you're not wanting to add to the budget tremendously. So yeah. you are just <laughs> extending it and exposing parts as opposed to, now we're just going to really mess this up and like record. It's not another big adventure. It's kind of more of the same. And it's usually three o'clock in the morning. You know, it's usually the last thing you think of. And, and it's, oh, guys, we've got to do this 12-inch. When are we going to do it? Oh, we better do it now. And it's literally sticking bits of tape together as well. Back in that day, there was no kind of cut and paste well they literally was cut and paste it was cutting a piece of half inch tape and sticking it to another piece of half inch tape all right well here's me hoping that you do a 12 inch single yourself just to on a song like this where you've got all this potentially even unused stuff where you've got alternate takes and you've got to just drag all that stuff out and extend it out and show us the guts or even do it as a revenge on the 12 inches that you had to work on before as I'm really going to screw this up. I'm really going to twist it around for the middle. Either that or when you don't have the worry of getting your song played on the radio, which I don't really bother about anymore, that's quite a freedom. So I can actually just write a seven and a half, 15 minute song. I don't care. And put all those elements in it just because I can. So I hadn't realized until I listened to you on the Soda Jerker podcast that you were a a fusion guy and that you even went through a prog phase in your writing. Like it all makes a lot of sense out of a song like The Riddle that you had that that you're writing in the post-prog. And I know, you know, a a number of like Level 42 and some other bands like that, those also seem to be fusion guys in terms of the licks they had at their disposal and the chords that they were shoving in there, that there's at least some Steely Dan lurking in the background and probably much more fringe stuff. It was prog first and then fusion music, really. I was really into my kind of genesis around sort of 1972, 73, that kind of time. So is there any, now that you don't have the pressure, the label pressure, is there any temptation to do an eight-minute song well, <laughs> that just goes in some crazy direction? Well, that's the dilemma, isn't it? I, and I'm quite connected in the prog world as well because I know, I mean, I've, I've recorded with Steve Hackett and Tony Banks and... um I'm big mates with Jacko from King Crimson and there's all those guys and, and Steve Wilson. So I'm connected and I could do it. I, well, I don't know if I could do it, actually. I still have a kind of a pop sensibility that I can't get rid of, really. It's still kind of Just fair. do a duo album with Hackett. He'll fill in the space. Yeah. You, know, you can... <laughs> <laughs> but we'd all be fighting over the guitar solos, wouldn't we? It would be... No, I'll take this one, Steve. <laughs> you have to do a a Pat Metheny group thing where he plays a guitar solo and you go and like <laughs> vocalizing over it. Yeah. Just to make it not at home in any time period. Just to, So, you know, no, nobody wants to listen to it. Yeah. Oh, I could do that. Well, let's get to this third one out. So it's the new version of The Riddle. And I wanted this, you know, so we could have an excuse to talk about the 80s stuff. I will link to the 80s version. And if people, you know, this was one of your big singles, so hopefully people will have been familiar with it. But frankly, I had not heard in a long time. It didn't play in the States that it did in England. So it was fun digging through that stuff. But I appreciated the No Frills album, 2010, as what are these actually, don't get distracted by the 80s production values. Like, what are these things actually as songs? So this is a funny one then to pick. I guess after picking it, I watched a YouTube thing of, you you know, saying that, yeah, these lyrics don't mean anything. They were scratch lyrics. They're not. (laughs) So I don't know how much of a story there, but let's, uh, 
any sort of introductory words about the No Frills project before we play this version? I think it was, I can't even know, I can't even remember when No Frills was, about 2008, wasn't it? It said 2010, but then I saw there's an acoustic version of this, like on your 1999 live album. Really? There's a live version that stuck at the end. How far does this go back? When were you trying to do these different versions of these songs? It wasn't even my idea. I got asked to do some acoustic gigs. I wasn't really an acoustic player. I didn't didn't even have a decent acoustic guitar at the time. This is sort of mid 2000s 2005 2006 something like that and i said no because the prospects terrified me just of a solo acoustic standing on stage on your own doing that thing and i kept saying no but this one guy was really insistent and he said well you know it's in dubai so i thought well he was the much will do it away from home where nobody's gonna see me fall on my ass so it's a little club in dubai and i did the gigs and then that, that became the start of quite a lot of acoustic gigs i did and then I, I did a run of them in the uk and kind of meeting people afterwards i'd, I'd get asked for yeah do you have any recordings of what you've just done you know the acoustic versions of these songs and i didn't have anything and i I, more people asked the more it became apparent that actually might be a good idea that people would like to hear this so um in fact my wife persuaded me to do it she said well you know how it's not gonna take long is it you just sit down in front of you know acoustic guitar (laughs) sit down in front of a mic and just sing how long's a gig an hour and a half you can make an album in an hour and a half gone off you go and it took me about three months i think because i did so many takes of the same song and just getting it right and just getting it kind of sounding how I want it to sound because it's a cruel place the studio and all the flaws all the creaks all the little splutters and fluff notes come out so there's a few there's a bit of editing going on as well to actually get to play something perfectly all the way through it really happens so it took a long time but it was worth it I think I mean it's actually become a very popular album for me I, I kind of still get a lot of people still want to buy this album so it's proved to be a good idea yeah so it, it does seem to have the benefit of it's like a greatest hits album but yet and yet you don't have to pretend you're in the 80s there's a whole <laughs> it's, the, it's so it's so raw it's so honest yeah and that's why it took so long i think kind of, it's <laughs> kind of so exposed and, and i wanted to get it right i know it's for this song i mean you the same as you were saying for the previous song like well, why have the chorus three times if you're going to do the same thing every one that you switch up between that you start in this i had made the note fleetwood mac landslide but you know th- that whatever the name of that finger picking guitar yeah style that you're doing the first the first bit in and then you switch to a more strummy heavier kind of thing by the time we get to the second one going through the bridge and then you go to a uh, palm muting for the what was the what synth flute bagpipe section in the original version <laughs> let's just play the melody do it quiet and then keep that up with this sort of muted delivery and then open it back up for the third one so yeah it still sounds like it should be that long got two strong arms, blessings of Babylon time, to carry on and try for sins and false alarms, so to America the brave, wise men saved near a tree by a river there's a hole in the ground where man of iron goes around and around and his mind is a beacon in the veil of the night for a 
strange kind of fashion is wrong and right, but he'll never, never fight over you. I got plans for us, nights in the scullery days. Instead of me, I only know what to discuss. Oh, for anything but life. Wise men fighting over you. It's not me you see. Pieces of Valentine and just a song of mine to keep from burning his story. Seasons of gasoline and gold. Wise men fall near a tree by a river. There's a hole in the ground where an old man of Aaron goes around and around, and his mind is a beacon in the veil of the night for a strange kind of fashion. There's a wrong and right, but he'll never, never fight. Corridors without a plan of yours, a blackbird sings on bluebird hill. Thanks to the calling of the wild, wise men's child. I know it's no frills, but I, I find it difficult to see how you could resist just, oh, it's still very honest and acoustic if I just layer myself in a background <laughs> vocal or four over this. Just, why not? I must own up to a little bit of cheating. There was a little bit. I mean, I, I, live, I use a loop pedal quite a lot, and there's quite a lot of looping going on in this album. And the thing is, it's in stereo. There are two, because I've recorded a mic on one side and a DI on the other. I've kind of affected them so they it sounds like a, a stereo guitar, and it's only one guitar, so I'm not overdubbing or anything. But as far as I know, I don't know the existence of a stereo loop pedal, so I couldn't loop in the same way. So I did end up looping some sections on the computer, I have to say. There you go. 
I've come, I've come clean. I feel like a better man. It's now. not obvious in in this song. No, I don't think there is it. I don't think it is in this song. I'm just saying on on the okay, album well, itself. Though, I think, and plus of getting it absolutely perfect, I might have had edited a few bits and pieces together when it might have drifted off. So, do you want to? You can even pick up a guitar if you want. Do we still have time to get a little muso on these verses mm-hmm. on why the chords are doing what you know? So to America the Brave, what you're going up a half step. Just give us a couple of the gestures that are going on in here that is make the song as distinctive as it is. So capo on the third fret. Yeah, so it go. I got too strong. So to America the brave. Yeah, what's going on there? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, so I'm going... Uh, so to America the brave. So the note is uh, it's the seventh in that minor seventh. Mm, okay. So to America the brave. Yeah, and it's so it goes. It just, I just love the fact that it's. I don't. I don't know why. I just went there, but it's that note is there in the vocal and and in the chord as well. And this is unchanged from the original version, right? Yeah. From in, ter- in terms of the chord yeah. progression, okay. But it comes out so it's a, such a obviously different effect. Yeah, it just makes it difficult to play on an acoustic guitar. That's a, <laughs> that's what it actually does. <laughs> and then the middle eight is a nightmare. So originally, the mid the middle eight would have modulated up a semitone, so it was. would have gone to right f major seven and the being the major seven so we've gone up a semitone but i did i just couldn't be bothered to do that because it mean moving the capo and i they have to invented a movable capo haven't they now that you can actually move with a foot pedal foot uh, pedal yeah i'd like to see well, one of those. I, <laughs> <laughs> if not they should because then i can change key but no but in, instead it just stays on e minor up time to kill Slyworks in corridors without a plan of yours A blackbird sings on bluebird hill Thanks to the calling of the wild Wise winter We're back where we were, but I, yeah, too many chords. <laughs> what was I thinking? So, yeah, was it, this was early enough in your career that you were just, was there music theory driving this at the time? Or? No, I don't think there was. I, I did just, genuinely just follow a tune and just kind of see where it led me. And on the original, it led me into a chorus that had modulated a semitone, which was quite effective because it kind of gave a lift to the whole end of the of the song that wasn't immediately obvious. It wasn't, hey, key change. It wasn't one of those. It was kind of. Yeah, it's not too uncommon, you know, that it moves up a whole step mm. like now that's it's the yeah happier part yeah. that we're but to do a half step that's kind of weird yeah and you wouldn't know it was there even unless you actually sat down and tried to learn it right because it seems attention the discontinuity is getting into the bridge you're just staying there yeah that's where it happens or it doesn't happen in this case i know i we're not going to go through the lyrics and figure out what they mean because i know they don't they don't mean anything they were scratched oh, lyrics you're supposed to fix them <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting that that you could still I'm surprised that you're telling that story about yet, you know, you're singing in a fairly passionate manner. 
some of these things and you know, a lot of the individual gestures. I think it's just more that it was, you know, a stream of consciousness thing that really has individual phrases and things that were heartfelt in the way they were put out. Yeah, you can still be connected to a lyric, you know, all that stuff came out of me. And there's probably little phrases and stuff that are, they're about me, they're little bits. But as a coherent, it doesn't, you know, stick together as a coherent lyric about anything in particular. But there are phrases there that have got, that came from somewhere. And they came very quickly. They came, it was literally 10 minutes to write the lyric. Did you really have plans for Nights in the Scullery? Was that... <laughs> So I, I no, I, I have no idea <laughs> okay. what, he, okay. what plans they were, or and what happened in the scullery after that. I have no, I've no idea. But people got very passionate about trying to figure out what it was about, and the, I, I got essays and massive, almost books people wrote about it and sent to me to tell me what they thought the lyric was about. And some of it actually made quite a lot of sense. <laughs> you think, well, maybe it is. Maybe that's what it's about. That's all right. You're just a conduit. You don't have to understand it. Yeah, I'm just, uh, it's all, it's all just coming through me. I'm channeling. Yeah. <laughs> Is Aran a real anything? That's a real place. There are two Isles of Aran. One is off the coast of, I think it's in Galway Bay, off the coast of, of Ireland. Okay. And the other one is, is off the west coast of Scotland. They're real places, the old man of Aaron. You had mentioned also on the, uh, on the Soda Jerker podcast that you would write little like fantasy odes when you were young. Like, was this just sort of an extension of that? Did I say that? I kind of did. Yeah. I used to write little, you know, stories and fairy tales and, and stuff, but I kind of found it in the loft. One of them in the loft, this stupid, ridiculous story. I think I just read Lord of the Rings or something for the first time and decided I was going to write my own version of it, which is about as opposed to being three massive books it was like about 27 pages <laughs> yeah i don't know whether that has any connection or relevance to what we're talking about but it's all me it's all kind of happened well let's make it connect so you're writing for our fourth song just to introduce our final thing here you wrote a song was it about prostate cancer so we're talking men united this is the recent <laughs> single yeah this was very different in that i was i wrote to a very specific brief I've rarely done that in my life. I kind of got involved with the charity and I went to see them in their offices in London. And I sat down with the guy and they, they were just talking about the campaign and how it was running and that it was about men's friendship and stuff. And, and they, they work a lot with some of the big football clubs and stuff over here, some big soccer clubs and pubs and, and places where men hang out and, and talk to each other and, and about men's relationships rather than me sitting down and writing a song about prostate cancer, which is, uh, you know, not, not going to be the easiest thing to get across. So it was obvious that I didn't want a song about prostate cancer. Make sure to check your, like, no, no, uh, public health. Yeah, absolutely. You went to put your finger and all that kind of stuff. They already had a strap line of men united. That was their thing. That was what it was kind of emblazoned across a lot of their literature and their campaign things. So I just said, well, do you mind if I use the strap line? Can I, it just kind of lends itself to a, a lyric. Can I just write a song called Men United? And they said, well, yeah, great, that'd be great. And it was a very easy song to write, actually, because I just wrote about my mates. <laughs> Changed their names to protect the innocent, obviously. Is it a sign of how authentic the song is, of how much you go to that accent? There's a different form of Britishness in yeah, this Yeah, it's just a little <laughs> bit, I guess, because it is a British charity and it's kind of... And I, I do go in and out. That's yeah, It's a really interesting point, actually, the whole accent thing, because I've, I've become more English, I think, the, the longer I do things. But then you'll find a song that just doesn't fit Englishness 
and you'll just find yourself singing in a kind of mid-Atlantic accent or you want to rhyme with bath or with something and you can't because it's in <laughs> so you do it in an American accent to make it rhyme or whatever so yeah but this is particularly British yeah just to connect I guess because the kind of people I'm connecting with are guys down the pub and guys at the football game and so I kind of it's more conversational I've sung pretty much as I speak in fact that I think I've got a few takes somewhere where I, I just sung normally and I thought this sounds really wrong since it sounds a bit odd why is it not sounding right? And it was because I was just kind of, some words were had a little transatlantic twang to them and some didn't. So I think, well, I'm going to have to do one or the other. I'm just going to have to be honest about it and just, this is how it is. And it just, I, I think it was more, it was more likely to connect to people sung like that, I think. Yeah. Well, I think it is good for our culture to have a pretty song with this chorus of Men United that what that would mean in this particular year where I am in the world is some sort of weird men's rights thing. Like that, mm. no, this is what the connotation should be for a phrase like this. Not that. So good job. Yeah, you can do some stuff over there at the moment. Yeah, I can get that. <laughs> All right. Any last words? Anything you want to plug? Is, there, is this going to be on a new album? Is there a new album coming someday? Well, there will someday. Yeah, someday. I mean, I am working. I've, they seem to be about five years apart albums at the moment, but I'm constantly doing stuff and constantly throwing away most of it. But well, I saw you have this whole library of stuff What that you're trying to market for soundtracks and oh, things. Oh, no, that, that's kind of a, a sideline. A dear friend of mine called Andrew Sonnex was, I did some work with him back in the early 90s. He used to run a company that did music for advertising. And I did a few bits and pieces for him then. But he just runs this really neat company called Audio Network, who um, is an online company who deal with a lot of the major TV companies around the world and mm-hmm. just supply music for documentaries and lifestyle programs and just about anything that you want, you know. And I did, I've done some bit of work for him and it, it just gives him such a wonderful freedom to just not even have to worry about what the song's about. And just write a well, piece it's not of even music. necessarily whole songs, right? No, it's they're, just these... well, they're kind of you know, they're sort of pieces of music, two, three minutes long, just um, mm-hmm. random stuff. I haven't really got a, hang- a handle on what it actually is yet, but it's kind of it's fun to do because it's totally different. And I get to work with big orchestras. And I mean, the piece I've done recently that's not on the site yet is just piano and orchestra, and I don't play the piano. So that was that was quite a challenge getting the piano part together and getting someone else to play it exactly the same that was quite fun yeah i wasn't sure if that was if the gaps in the output and i even heard when you sat down to do eight Mm. that it was it's not that you were building songs up for the last four years since the previous album it was that you know it's time to put an album out i will sit down and i'll write these in the studio well yeah i mean you still go back you you still there's a little bit of crossover and i'm kind of you know there's, uh there's a couple of tracks i'm working on at the moment that are from songs the recordings that i did like 10 years ago that didn't make it for some reason. And I'm listening back to them and I'm thinking, oh, actually, you know what? That pre-chorus thing there, that's that's really good. I could use that. And just breaking a few things up for salvage. So, And just ideas that you've had for years and years and never and they've sat on an iPhone. You've never done anything with them and they kind of turn up as well. So it's not all brand new. It's never all brand new, I don't think. Quite a bit of it is new, but not all of it. I guess just as far as your sort of need on a day-to-day basis to be creating stuff, is it just that 
you're not under pressure to you know produce an album for the record company no. in the next two. So that I sort of let you off the hook in terms of the lost, like what the meaning of the lyrics are that that we hadn't really talked about that. That it seemed once you, even though that was something that came late in the game after this grew, after you put these things together, but it sounds like it's about you know sort of midlife sloth. Yeah, it's exactly not that's, writing that's so much. Exactly like, what it is. <laughs> was that a self-flagellation song at the time of trying to well just a little bit yeah and, and but then you put it in the third person or the, or the second person just to kind of throw people off the scent a little bit and it gives you license to exaggerate or just change a few bits and pieces that aren't, that aren't right yeah so i wasn't sure if this new thing for soundtracks was the new direction i know you had you know this big gap no it's just i haven't been my head hasn't been in the right place to make a new album but the time you know it will come when it comes and i've got a few ideas and it's just it's always work in progress. All right. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate your time. That's my pleasure, Mark. Nice talking. Cheers, man. Bye. Bye. I've gonna make old Stevie. I trust him with my life. But never with my secrets, my money or my wife We'd sing until we sung out, laugh until we cry And we're united till we die Jasper's worth a packet, he really is quite posh He wears a houndstooth jacket, plays badminton and squash we meet up for a bevy in a cheeky rogue and yosh And we are united till we die Yeah, we're men united, undivided men United and I Load of balls you've ever heard But we can hang for hours Without a single word Cause we're united till we die Then there's mental Mickey As crazy as he sounds He's difficult and tricky The king of all the clowns We've had our little issues We've had our ups and downs, but we are united till we die.
us are perfect None of us pretend It would be so easy To find a new old friend Although we never say We'll be there at the end Cause we're men United And we're Thanks again so much to Nick Kershaw. For more information on him, check out nickkershaw.net. It's always interesting for me to hear when an artist has gone on a progressive musical journey of some sort, and now, being successful, no longer caring about radio appeal, what do they do? So Nick has guested on, has played around with some of those prog guys, as he mentioned, but is no longer writing something like Fusion himself. But a primary part of his methodology is still what he referred to as messing about. He's still experimenting, he's still trying things, he's not staying in his comfort zone, and he certainly hasn't lost the perfectionism that drove his early work. Just describing what it took to record that supposedly easy acoustic album, that he does not just outsource large portions of the production to people over the internet, that he will still go through the effort to having a live drummer or a live bassist come in just to improve the sound of one part that he's already programmed. So while I would, of course, love to hear more material from him, more than an album every five years, and maybe self-consciously trying to pursue some of these other aspects of his interests, in other words, more like my guest next time, Jonathan Sagel from Camper Van Beethoven, who's a guy who's just constantly recording every idea that comes to his head. Something gets made out of it, maybe multiple somethings. But on the other hand, with Nick's method, you know, only the best material makes it off of his iPhone in the first place. So you get less of a sprawling creative body of work, but you do have consistently high songwriting standards, production standards, you know, really giving everything his all every time. Nick referred to Peter Gabriel's growing up at one point, Peter Gabriel being the extreme version of Nick's own tendency. Probably my favorite artist. When will that dude put out another album? In any case, I'm honored to have been able to talk to Nick. I've got a stream of similarly high-powered guests coming up. After Jonathan, it's Ken Stringfellow from the Posies, then Clive Farrington, who's the frontman for When in Rome, and then Glenn Mercer from the Feelies. Please go subscribe at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or at the iTunes store, where I would be very pleased if you would leave a rating or review. And my music is at marklint.com, or you can look up the activities of my current band, Mark Lint's Dry Folk, on Facebook, which has some recent gig videos, including one that leads off with our acoustic version of Wouldn't It Be Good. So go check that out. All right, folks, keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. <laughs>